the game of chess is to capture or neutralize your opponent's king and so win the game. I don't play chess, but I understand that the great players, the grandmasters, are able to think many moves ahead in order to anticipate and outmaneuver the moves of their opponents. So sometimes they'll be confident of victory many moves before the end game, especially if they're playing a weaker opponent. Some 2,600 years ago, in the Middle East, a tiny nation named Judah was facing a formidable opponent. Not in a game, but in a battle for survival. The massive army of the superpower of the day, Babylon, had been encamped around its walls for many months. And the end game was near. But long before this, many moves before this, 40 years before this, one man, Jeremiah the prophet, had predicted that the game was over. Not because the Babylonians were superior in strength to the people of Judah, but because the people of Judah had turned against the Lord their God, who had, who had promised to save them if they would seek him. But no one had listened. Now it was too late for Jerusalem. Its walls were crumbling. Its soldiers were deserting. Its people were starving. Mothers were even practicing cannibalism on their children. And the king didn't know which way to turn. And now as we continue our studies, which we've called Living in Hope, in Jeremiah, we come to the account of what I want to call the last moves of the king as he desperately tries to escape the inescapable. So look with me again at the two chapters that we read together in Jeremiah 37 and 38. And what I simply want to do, uh, staying with the chessboard analogy, is to focus on three of the pieces in the game, three of the players, three of the main characters in this story. First of all then, let's begin with the king himself, Zedekiah, the fickle king. Ten years before these events, the Babylonians had marched into Jerusalem. Instead of raising it to the ground, they had taken away the treasure from the temple and the court. They had taken away the king and the royal family and the leading officials. And they had installed a puppet government in place. And they would put a king in place, the uncle of the official king. This man called Zedekiah. In his book, Run With The Horses, Eugene Peterson comments very aptly, a weak, vacillating person, Zedekiah was appointed to rule, we suspect, because the Babylonians knew that he had no will of his own and would submit to whatever was commanded. What they failed to anticipate was that he would do what he was told by anyone who was in the room with him. Not long after the Babylonian army returned home then, Zedekiah's advisors began to suggest to him that it would be a good idea to rebel against the Babylonians who had put him in place. No doubt they justified uh, their counsel on the grounds not only of patriotism, but also theology. Were they not the chosen people of God? How could it be God's will for them to submit to a nation like Babylon that was guilty of the grossest idolatry? No loyal Israelite would ever suggest such a thing. But there was this one loyal Israelite who not only suggested such a thing, but declared in the strongest of terms that it was the Lord's will that they should submit to Babylon. 
You can imagine this didn't make Jeremiah the prophet the most popular person in the nation, let alone in the court. So here we have this king, this weak king, with conflicting advice. His counselors say, rebel against Babylon. Jeremiah the prophet says, no, 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 submit to Babylon. Now you would think it would be obvious which way Zedekiah would jump. Not least when a new pharaoh in Egypt, Hophra by name, responded to Judah's plea for help and began to march up from the south with an army to relieve the city of Jerusalem. The Babylonian army withdrew. Looked as though Jeremiah was wrong. But Zedekiah wasn't sure. So as we trace the story here, you'll see this contrasting attitude that Zedekiah has to Jeremiah as he jumps one way and then the other. Look at it very briefly. First of all, in asking for Jeremiah's prayers, he sends his counsellors and says to Jeremiah, please pray to the Lord our God for us. Maybe he hoped for a positive answer. Maybe he hoped for a dramatic deliverance as it happened once before in the history of Israel when Isaiah the prophet had promised relief that came in a remarkable way against the superpower of that day, Assyria. But if so, he is sadly disappointed. For Jeremiah tells him in no uncertain terms, the Babylonians will be back and they will destroy this city. And so during this relief from the siege, Jeremiah sets out to visit his family home in the town of Anathoth, uh, checking out on some property. If you were with the series previously, this is before he buys the field that he's offered by his cousin, it may, his uncle. It may well be that he's going to check it out beforehand. But as he comes to the Benjamin Gate in the city, he's stopped by a sentry, Elijah, who accuses him of deserting to the Babylonians and arrests him. Jeremiah protests his innocence. It's obvious to anyone who's lived in Jerusalem for the past 40 years that the last thing he's guilty of is desertion. But he's brought before the court officials, probably the same advisors to the king who seized the opportunity to take it out on Jeremiah. He's beaten, imprisoned in a dungeon, the Secretary of State's house, where he's kept for a long time. Now it's clear the king knows what's going off. The king knows where Jeremiah is because after a long time, all he's doing is allowing his ill treatment. But Zedekiah cannot ignore the prophet. Think of a later king, Herod, who arrested another great prophet, John the Baptist. And yet he loved to call him in from time to time to hear a word from God. Never paid any attention to it, but he wanted to listen to it. So Zedekiah sends for Jeremiah, and once again we hear him seeking help. Is there any word from the Lord, he asks. If you can read this in Hebrew... Jeremiah's answer is blunt and to the point. Five short syllables in the original language it says, yes, you'll be handed over to the king of Babylon. Yet despite this, the king responds positively to Jeremiah. You can see this man is all over the place. And when Jeremiah requests he be not returned to prison, Zedekiah improves his conditions. He's placed under house arrest and given food rations. But worse, much worse, is to come. Once again, the fickle king listens to his advisors. They accuse Jeremiah of treachery. He's telling people, he, we may as well give up. The soldiers are deserting. He's bad for morale. And they say to the king, this man should be put to death. And the weak king, Eugene Peterson describes him as a marshmallow, gives in to their request by abdicating his responsibility. He says, he's in your hands. The king 
can do nothing to oppose you. What he should have said was, the king will do nothing to oppose you. But like another ruler, one with a greater prophet than Jeremiah, like Pilate before Jesus, he washes his hands of responsibility. And Jeremiah's opponents, enemies, unwilling to have blood on their hands, devise a way of killing him, painfully. They lower him into a cistern. In those days they had these sort of bottle-shaped cisterns for gathering rainwater and groundwater, but in this day of famine it was dried up and they lowered him down with ropes into the bottom and he sinks into the mud, probably up to his armpits in the bottom of this bog, at the bottom of this cistern. Humanly speaking, his prospects look bleak. But the Lord has made a promise to Jeremiah. When he called him, he said, I will rescue you from your enemies. Jeremiah 1, verse 8. And so it turns out to be, for in a moment, as we'll see, the king is confronted by a courageous man who tells him what has been done to Jeremiah. And once again, Jeremiah's, uh, Zedekiah's attitude to Jeremiah changes in ordering his rescue. And so once again, Jeremiah is hauled out of the pit Return to house arrest. And what does the king do? He then goes to him again and says, I need some word from the Lord. Have you anything to say? And after receiving a personal assurance from Zedekiah that he'll not kill him for speaking the truth, Jeremiah gives the same message that surrender to the Babylonians is the only option. God's word has not changed. But with it comes an amazing gracious offer. Verse 17, chapter 38. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, if you surrender to the king of Babylon, your life will be spared, the city will not be burned down, you and your family will live. It is a final offer of grace from the Lord. Despite all his dithering over these years, Zedekiah has a final chance to save himself and his family and his city but he's too afraid about what others might say and do to him. He's too afraid to take the risk of surrendering. The normal Babylonian procedure in these cases was to mutilate and then kill people who surrendered in this way. But the risk should have been weighed against the Lord's word, and that was Zedekiah's problem. Here's the big problem as we come to the point. Notice how the section in Jeremiah begins. Chapter 37, verse 2. Neither he nor his attendants nor the people of the land paid any attention to the words the Lord had spoken through Jeremiah the prophet. The word translated pay attention is a Hebrew word, shema. It means not just to hear, it means to pay attention. It's the basis of the creed of the Jewish people. Shema, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Hear, pay attention, listen, put into practice what you hear. Obey what I tell you. See, Zedekiah was one of these people, and I meet them in pastoral work, who wanted a word from the Lord when he was in trouble. The kind who never pays much attention, but when they're in trouble, they say, will you say a little prayer for me? In my first church, we had a neighbour. At my first church, my senior pastor was a Welshman, and our neighbour heard about this, and he said, oh, I must come sometime, he said. I love to hear a fiery sermon from a Welshman from time to time. Make a blind bit of notice to his life. To hear, but not to put into practice. Zedekiah was guilty of a failure to listen to God's word. Instead, what he actually did was what his advisors told him, which contradicted God's word. He wasn't prepared to be stand up and counted. His big problem was a failure to listen to God's word, a failure to surrender to God's will. 
He was unwilling to surrender, not primarily to the Babylonians, but to the will of the Lord, which in this case was the Babylonians. He was unwilling to trust God's word, unwilling to live by faith. And the consequences were disaster for him, for his family, for his city, for his nation. Now let's get to the point. Are you a Zedekiah? Deep down in your heart of hearts, you know God's word is true. Maybe that's why you come to Charlotte Chapel from time to time. Maybe that's why from time to time you open the Bible and read it. But when push comes to shove, you won't risk all on it for fear of what others might think. You see, hearing is not enough. Jesus told a story about this. You remember the parable of the two builders at the end of his great sermon on the mount in Matthew 7? About two men each built a house. Both looked the same. But when a great storm hit them, one stood firm while the other collapsed. What was the difference? What's the point in the parable? This thing in the tale. Well, the wise builder, Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a man, a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the foolish builder, he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. You see, both heard the words of Jesus, but only one of them put them into practice. And I wonder, which one are you? Are you a person who's put into practice the words of Jesus? Have you committed your life to him and the truth of his word? You see, Zedekiah was a foolish builder, a fickle king. That's the first character in the story. In contrast, we turn to another person in the story. Not an important king, more like a pawn on the chessboard, but nonetheless a significant person in God's plan. His name is Ebed-Melech. He's the fearless servant. As we've seen, Jeremiah has few friends in the nation. At the one extreme, there's people like Elijah the century, the kind of guy who says, I'm just doing my job, governor, and arrests him. At the other extreme, we've got these enemies who say, he must be put to death. And in the middle, you've got a weak king who just says, well, do what you can because um, my hands are tied. So Jeremiah hits his lowest point in the system. He's at rock bottom or mud bottom probably. A friend in need is a friend in need, but Jeremiah appears to be friendless. But the Lord has not abandoned Jeremiah or his promise to rescue him. And as is so often the case, the Lord has a human agent who is willing to risk everything to save his prophet. So we're introduced to one of these lovely people in the Bible who you just meet briefly and yet have such a significant effect in God's plans. Look at the man God used. His name is Ebed-Melech, or is it? The word Ebed-Melech, Ebed means servant, Melech means king. He is literally a servant of the king. It may well be a title rather than his actual name. It's an appropriate name for he serves King Zedekiah. He's an official in the royal palace, a person who's been placed in an influential position where he can affect policy. As we'll see, he serves a higher king than Zedekiah. We also learn that he's a Cushite. That means he's a black African. Almost certainly he's a Nubian from northern Sudan. And as a foreigner, he would be barred from the worship of Israel. And even more so, if it's likely, he was also a eunuch. Yet this is the man the Lord uses to rescue Jeremiah. But for this to happen, he must take a considerable risk. 
and go against the tide of popular opinion. It is for Abed-Melech, in contrast to Zedekiah, in every way it's an act of faith. Confront the king in, he's confronting the king in public. He's informing the king of Jeremiah's situation. In his commentary, in his book of series, uh, series on Jeremiah, which we've recommended, uh, Philip Riken comments, This single brave man forced Zedekiah's hand. The king had washed his hands of the whole affair, but Ebed-Melech put it right back in his hands. When he exposed Sistengate on the floor of the Senate, Zedekiah could no longer plead innocence. And the risk paid off for there's a successful outcome. Zedekiah, what does he do? He changes his mind again. And he says to Ebed-Melech, take 30 men. Uh, the text isn't clear. It's either 30 men or 3 men. If it's 3 men, that would be 4 men needed to lift him out of the cistern. If it's 30 men, it's almost certainly to give him some protection from anyone who might try and stop him what he's doing. And Ebed-Melech, very practically, he uses some old rags and clothes, if you're familiar with the authorised versions, lovely words, old cast clouts and rotten rags that they put under his arms and they haul him out of the cistern. The rescue is effected. I wonder, that's why I chose the opening hymn, I wonder if Jeremiah sang Psalm 40 as he came out. He lifted me, you know, out of the miry pit and put me on a rock and lifted me out of the terrible situation. The mission is successful through the courage of a man like Ebed-Melech. What a contrast with the cowardice of the king he served. And again I ask you, are you an Ebed-Melech or are you a Zedekiah? Riken again comments, because Ebed-Melech was God's man, he was willing to take a stand for God's prophet. He could see that Jeremiah was a good man, as, uh, was as good as dead, but he valued the life of God's prophet as much as he prized the truth of God's word. Even when the whole world seemed arrayed against him, he had the courage to do what is right. And God works through such people, through such unlikely people that God brings into his kingdom. As you read about Ebed melech you think in the New Testament, Acts chapter 8, an Ethiopian eunuch, maybe from the same area, who encounters Jesus Christ and has an influence in his nation. I wonder, do we have the same courage as Ebed melech Are we essentially servants of King Jesus? Are you prepared to stand against the tide of popularity or political correctness and to declare your allegiance to Jesus. Let me speak to those who are students, particularly those who've come up to Edinburgh as students. You'll find challenges like this. Just let on you're a member of the Christian Union and a lot of people say, ah, uh-uh, you're there about that pure course they ran. Or you're all against homosexuals. You're narrow-minded. You're bigoted. Not true, of course, but doesn't make you the most popular student on the block. Are you prepared to stand up for Jesus Christ in your office or when a situation comes up where you need to declare your allegiance and let people know where you stand? Can I say to those of you who are starting out, either as students or, or in a new job or whatever it is, take your stand as early as you can. I don't mean going to the office on the first day with a big Bible and say, hi guys, I'm a Christian. I don't even mean, you know, wear a big bag with a fish on it. Oh, a little one might help, but... but an opportunity will come. There'll be something said. Something you'll be asked to join or participate in. There'll be a chance to stand up and be counted. And I challenge you to do it as soon as you possibly can. To nail your colours to the mast early. God sees and knows. 
and rewards such faith, either in the short or the long term. And as we read on, God willing, in the next in our series, we read that Ebed-Melech is saved because of what he did. The Lord promises him, I will save you, you will not fall by the sword, but will escape with your life because you trust in me. So let's turn, finally, to the third person in the story. As the end game is played out, the king makes his last moves. We come to the central character of the book. I've symbolised him with the castle, or the rook as it's called, on a chessboard. Of course, Jeremiah, the faithful prophet. Here in these events, final days of the city of Jerusalem, we see Jeremiah fulfilling his destiny. If you've been in this series, do you remember right back at the beginning in January, we looked at the call of Jeremiah. The Lord said to him, Get yourself ready, stand up and say to them, whatever I command you, do not be terrified of them, or I will terrify you before them. Today I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Unlike Zedekiah, Jeremiah believed God's word. He put it into practice. And he's done it for 40 years against the tide. So we see Jeremiah's consistency. When anarchy stalks the streets of Jerusalem, Jeremiah continues proclaiming the Lord's unpopular word. You imagine his situation. Everybody's in desperation in the city. And the king says to Jeremiah, have you not got a word of encouragement for us? Just think how popular it could have become if he just modified his message a bit and offered some hope. How he'd have boosted the morale of the citizens. But Jeremiah can only speak the truth. And there is no hope, even when it seems like there is hope, when the Babylonians withdraw. Jeremiah says they'll be back. Even if you beat them all and there are only wounded men left, they'll still beat you. You haven't got a chance. Yes, there is ultimate hope. But it's against the background of God's judgment. Yes, the Lord has plans to give them a hope and a future. Plans to prosper and not to harm them. But they lie in the future. Salvation comes after judgment. And I simply say it's a very tempting thing for preachers, for churches, for Christians to focus only on what people want to hear. To make the message popular, palatable. The light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ shines against the darkest background of the world under the wrath and judgment of God. And unless you understand that, you will never appreciate how bright the gospel shines against such a dark background. And to say that may cost you in the popularity stakes. And who knows, as things get worse, as they did for Jeremiah, and as they may well do in our nation, Rodney touched on it in his prayer, it may cost you a lot more. But Jeremiah continued proclaiming the Lord's word despite the personal cost. These chapters in Jeremiah have been called the Old Testament Passion Narrative. In their description, the prophet's suffering. As like Jesus, he is unjustly tried, beaten, imprisoned, sentenced to death. Jeremiah's case, left for dead. No wonder when our Lord asked Jesus, asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They answered, some people say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets, Matthew 16, 14. 
But although Jeremiah and Jesus share some similarities, they are no means, by no means identical. For in the final days of the city of Jerusalem, notice the second thing about Jeremiah's life. Not only his consistency, but Jeremiah's humanity. No one save Jesus is perfect. Not even a great man like Jeremiah. On the first occasion when he's been in prison for a long time, he pleads with the king not to send him back. We see his fear of dying. He says to Zedekiah, but now my lord the king, please listen. Let me bring my petition before you. Do not send me back to the house of Jonathan the secretary or I shall die there. How easy it is to criticise Jeremiah. To tell him, Jeremiah, snap out of it. Your real lord and master will look after you. But we should be careful not to throw stones. Who knows how we might react if we'd undergone a fraction of the suffering of Jeremiah over such a long period. And so we should not be surprised when after an even worse experience in the cistern and in the mud, Jeremiah again shows his fear of dying and his fear of the king. And the king tells him to speak the word of the Lord. Jeremiah says, if I give you an answer, will you not kill me? And so he goes along with his king's plan by giving a false or at least incomplete explanation of what he and Zedekiah had been talking about to those who asked him. The Lord told him, don't be terrified, but at this stage, it appears that he is terrified. Now, what I want to say is such things should not lessen our appreciation of Jeremiah. All too often we make heroes of people who are imperfect. And then we're disappointed when they don't live up to the image that we have created of them. Rakan again comments helpfully, Jeremiah's fear is a reminder of his humanity. He was a hero of the faith, not a superhero. Like any other believer, Jeremiah had times of doubt, fear, weakness and even sin. This is not to encourage us to fail, let alone, God forbid, to sin. But it is to encourage us when we do fail, when we know the weakness of the human body, when we're afraid of dying, when we're sick, when we're under pressure, as some of you are at this very time, that the Lord's promises to us still remain as they did for Jeremiah. Nearly finished and our time has gone. Let me conclude where I began with the game of chess. On February the 10th, 1996, the world chess champion, Garry Kasparov, was defeated by a computer program called Deep Blue. Although he went on to win the series, they upgraded the computer program the next year and he was defeated again. There's some dispute as to whether a computer can beat a human being at chess. But there is no doubt that God's plans will succeed no matter what the greatest human beings may plan and do. You see, the Lord's word to Jeremiah came true. The Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, as we'll see in the next chapter. In chess, I believe it's possible for the king and the rook, the castle, to exchange places. Certain rules about this, which date back apparently to the 16th century. I did some research on Google about this. Uh, the purpose is to save the king and, and hopefully win the game. But in the case of Jeremiah and Zedekiah, the prophet was saved and the king was defeated. Did you notice the contrast? A final exchange of places. The prophet is hauled out of the mud. They pulled him up with ropes, lifted him out of the cistern. Jeremiah remained in the courtyard of the guard until the day Jerusalem was captured. The Babylonians treated 
Jeremiah favourably, honourably. Not so with Zedekiah. All that Jeremiah had warned about came true. The king ended up in the mud. Seen in the song which Jeremiah foretold, the women would sing and did sing when the Babylonians marched in. Your feet are sunk into the mud. Your friends have deserted you. Jeremiah's sons were killed before his eyes. His eyes were put out. He was carried off into exile. And the beloved city of Jerusalem was burnt to the ground. And all because he did not listen to the word of God. He missed his last chance. He made the final wrong move. And it was checkmate. End game. It's a salutary warning. You cannot fight against God and hope to prevail. The last book of the Bible tells us that the triumph of the kingdom of Christ is certain. God's future kingdom. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. He will reign forever and ever. Revelation 11:15. Nothing can prevent that. The wise course of action is to bow the knee before King Jesus now. Then and only then will you live in hope as Jeremiah promised, just as the Babylonians, just when the Babylonians captured the city, he then offered the message of hope that we live in today, our verse for the year. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. May God help us to put our trust in Christ and to worship King Jesus. Let's pray together.